Just as Philip said right after the service, Lord of the Lord's Supper, how precious is the blood of Jesus. It is not just sufficient, it is all-powerful. It has done more for us than we can ever imagine. It saves souls. It transforms lives. It unites people. It restores. It replenishes. And it is the entryway to be in your presence forevermore. And so, Lord, we pray that the Lord Jesus would be magnified and honored this morning. We pray your Holy Spirit would come and that your Spirit would open our eyes and open our ears to see the spiritual truths that you are feeding us. May you be honored on this day. We pray this in the sufficient work of Christ alone. Amen. Well, I know it seems a little bit strange, but... I think that we have arrived at the perfect text for Mother's Day. I love it how God allows his glory to be magnified when by his divine providence he allows his word on the Lord's Day to be relevant to a special occasion. And you may be wondering how mustard seeds and yeast fit the occasion. And no, I'm not going to go to the obvious and talk about the blessing of mama's cooking. But when we get to the end here, you will see how all this works together. But before we get there, let's briefly review what we have learned to date in chapter 13 of Matthew. If you would, please turn back there in your Bibles. Matthew chapter 13, this is found on page 819 of your Pew Bible. The context is important. Jesus is alongside the lake shore as he's addressing a large crowd. He's speaking to the general population here, and that is his intended audience, the, the population overall, not just the disciples. And as he's doing so, he's addressing them in parables. Now remember, we said a parable is a comparison of two objects with the purpose to teach a spiritual truth. And in this instance, Jesus uses four parables in a row, and their order is important as well. In the first, we have the sowing of the gospel. Then you have the consequences of the judgment and then how the kingdom of heaven establishes itself. Each is teaching the crowd something about the kingdom of heaven using an everyday illustration. We already spoke about this a few times, but it's good to remember why Jesus spoke in parables in the first place. And there were three reasons, remember? First, Jesus spoke in parables because that's what the Old Testament prophecy said that the Messiah would do. We see that explained in verses 34 and 35 here. And Lord willing, in a couple of weeks, we will take the time to look at how the Messiah is portrayed in the Old Testament. But Jesus should be speaking in parables because that was a trait of the Lord's anointed one. Second, parables help identify the elect because only they arrive at its true meaning and its application. Jesus quotes here in chapter 13 from Isaiah chapter 6, explaining how that works. Only those who have had their ears opened to hear, and only those who have had their eyes opened to see, will understand. Therefore, parables rightly understood edifies the elect. Without the aid of the Holy Spirit, parables just become moral stories or, or fables. And last, parables were meant to be striking. They were expected to be confrontational in some way with the purpose to awaken the soul. Now, you may be asking, Blair, why do you keep 
repeating this information over and over again. Why do you keep telling us about parables? Well, I do so because this morning, these three facts, the messianic trait, edifying the elect, and also striking parables will come into play as we look at these last two parables given to the crowds. Because unlike the first two of the sower and of the weeds, Matthew does not provide Jesus' explanations of the remaining two. We're left on our own to find their meaning. And if Jesus is the Messiah, and if we are the elect, we should not only find the Spirit guiding us towards understanding and application, the meaning should also be somewhat striking to our sensibilities. So this morning, I want to walk us through each of these two remaining parables to the crowds, and then just leave a little bit of time for application at the end. And unlike the first two parables, the third and the fourth do not contain as much detail as the first two. But more detail is not necessary. These last are very similar to one another in how they describe how the kingdom of God operates. Now let me say that again, okay? Both of these parables are similar in how they describe how the kingdom of God operates. And that's the key here. Parable number three is found here in verse 31. Jesus continues his agricultural metaphors from earlier in the chapter. Verse 31, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air can come and make nests in its branches. Now, this parable is found in all three of the synoptics, and the emphasis is always on the smallness in each of them. In all three occasions, there is a focus of mustard being planted in a garden and the smallness of the seed there. And if we keep that in mind, it's going to help us in our understanding here. While our text in Matthew refers to planting the small seed in a field, this is a plant that one normally cultivated in one spice garden. Mustard was used as a flavoring in the first century, much like it's used today. And we need to be careful about not reading too much into the parable, but Jesus has already referred to citizens of the kingdom as being the salt of the earth back in chapter 5. There is something about Christians that adds a different flavor to the world that is around them. But the greatest emphasis here is the smallness of the mustard seed. For some reason, Jesus really doubles down on the concept of seeds here. Now, hopefully everyone here has seen a mustard seed before. In fact, children, if you've not seen one, I'm going to ask you to tell mom and dad to go to the spice rack at home and and pull out one so you can see just how tiny they are. Later on in chapter 17, Jesus is going to use this image of a tiny seed to illustrate faith. But within all three synoptic references of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the seed sown is a single seed that grows into a large tree. Now, Jesus could have chosen any other type of seed, such as an acorn to an oak or or a cone to a pine, but here he is emphasizing the tiniest, most common seed possible that becomes a plant large enough for birds to build their nest in. Now, most mustard seeds look more like large bushes, and they grow to be about 6 to 10 feet tall. And some can grow as large as 20 feet or more. But if you've never seen one, I'm going to encourage you, when you get home, not right now, but when you get home, Google one. Google up the images of it. Now, Jesus could have chosen here a larger tree for this illustration. But the focus 
is on the smallness of the seed that his audience would have been familiar, how it matured into a large tree. Now, those in the Lord's audience familiar with the prophets would have picked up on the connection between this parable and some of the Old Testament prophecies. Some prophecies also compared the growth of a tree with the nation of Israel. We read one earlier in Ezekiel 17 where the prophet speaks of judgment upon Judah and Israel, but he always, the prophets always refer to the hope that is supposed to come afterwards. So we find here in Ezekiel 17, verses 22 through 24, you can see this on your worship guide if you want. Thus says the Lord God, I myself will take a sprig from the top, from the lofty top of the cedar and will set it out. I will break off from the topmost of its young twigs a tender one, and I myself will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the mountain height of Israel will I plant it, that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a notable cedar. And under it will dwell every kind of bird in the shade of its branches. Birds of every sort will nest. And all the trees of the field shall know that I am the Lord. I bring low the high tree and make high the low tree. Dry up the green tree and make the dry tree flourish. I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it. Later on in Ezekiel 31, God will talk about Egypt as an empire, that it grew as a cedar to lofty heights, a tree so large that it too could house a multitude of birds, but the Lord God was going to chop it down. King Nebuchadnezzar, he had a dream about his empire being a large tree that all the birds could nest in. And yet Daniel had to deliver the bad news in Daniel chapter 4 that, that God would also cut him down to a stump. Comparing large kingdoms to trees that house birds was not that unusual. But here, Jesus draws attention to the smallness of the beginning of the kingdom of heaven. For something so grand as heaven itself, no one would expect it to emerge from something so small. And the final parable of the four here is, is that of leaven. It, it gives us the least amount of detail here as it's contained only within a single verse. Verse 33 he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hidden three measures of flour until it was all leavened. And Jesus draws attention to the leaven in this verse. This is a reference to the common process of making bread a staple in Middle Eastern diets. Leavening was done at least twice a week in the family home, and everyone would understand what Jesus was talking about. And for those of us who buy our bread at the grocery store, Leaven is yeast. It's a rising agent for bread. And perhaps like the association to seed in our first parable, there is an association to the good grain in the second. And this concept of grain leading to bread is just more affirmation that Jesus is the bread of life. Sometimes in Scripture, leaven is associated with evil, such as the warning, the stifles to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees in Matthew 16, or the Apostle Paul using it to speak of false teaching to the church in Galatians chapter 5. But there are occasions where it's also used positively, such as Leviticus chapter 7 and chapter 23, and of course right here. Now, I've read all sorts of explanations for what the three measures might represent. In fact, some say this is some type of reference to the Trinity, I've seen this alludes to Abraham's visit to the angels in Genesis chapter 18, verse 6. I've also heard contrary opinions that just because he uses the number three, that the measures represent the church, and, and Jesus is actually speaking about evil infiltrating the church. Now, that would be hard-pressed because one would have to read anachronistically back into it. 
neither the disciples nor the crowds would have understood it from that perspective. Now, I would say, just at its basic meaning, the three measures is intended to represent a large amount of flour. The leaven acts as an agent that transforms the nature of the flour to make it rise, not just double the amount, but triple. It only takes a little bit of yeast hidden within it to transform all of the dough. Jesus is communicating that the kingdom of heaven begins from within and it permeates the whole bunch. When it comes to an earthly kingdom, wouldn't you have thought that one is born into that kingdom as a citizen? Wouldn't you have thought that one has to apply for citizenship in the kingdom at the embassy? Maybe they have to do a special feat or or join the war effort, some privilege that they have to obtain. No. According to Jesus, the kingdom of heaven begins from within a person and it transforms the whole. When God's kingdom comes, it transforms its citizens from the inside out like leaven. And so now we've looked at the details of the parables and we've seen their central truths. Let's ask ourselves, do we get it? As the elect of God, do we understand the deeper spiritual application? And if so, does it surprise us? Compared to our natural assumptions, does it challenge those? Well, it does for me. These two parables teach us about God's sovereignty and his providence. Kingdom expansion is only something that God can do. If I use my natural understanding of the way that things work, I would normally associate the kingdom of God with an earthly kingdom. An earthly kingdom takes over by force. An earthly kingdom forces its citizens to obey the rules. An earthly kingdom typically is not tiny. Otherwise, to me, I wouldn't call it a kingdom. I can sit in my man cave and and I can say, well, I'm the king of my castle. And Lisa would say, "Uh uh-huh, whatever you say, honey. And then she would put the Door of the Explorer DVD for the kids to watch it on the flat screen at that point. But as a Christian, as someone who has been transformed by the Holy Spirit, I can see what Jesus is talking about here. The kingdom, like a seed planted in the soil which blooms, begins with a message about the king. Christianity began as a small following in Galilee. Perhaps we might even say smaller in the tiny village of Bethlehem when our king was born into the world. It has now grown into almost 2.4 billion adherents. 31% of the world's population claims the name of Jesus. Now, I get that some within that number might be Christian in name only, But the spread of Christianity around the world from a tiny baby born in an obscure village of Bethlehem to 2.4 billion adherents is staggering, especially when you consider the persecution that it endured over the centuries. But isn't that the way of God? His divine sovereignty is supreme in the way that he works. We might think of our genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. God chose a single race of people for his glory through a single solitary figure named Abraham. His seed would be the start of a brand new nation. And think of how the Lord did this, right? He appears to Abraham, who who is 99 years old, and his wife, Sarah, is 90 years old, and he tells this geriatric couple that they're going to have a baby 
and that that single child will fulfill the promise of a nation as numerous as stars in the sky, a nation that would be a display of God's holiness to the rest of the world. That is crazy. There's no way that that can happen. And yet it did. Or perhaps we might consider another ancestor of Jesus, a a shepherd boy also from Bethlehem. Remember, David wasn't old enough to be eligible to be a soldier. He was at most 15 years old when he shows up at King Saul's encampment. And here he, he hears the mighty giant Goliath's taunts, and he is appalled that anyone would put up with the giant's mocking of God. If no one else will battle Goliath in the Lord's strength, then he will. And he battles the giant with just a sling, and he wins. And that event launches the fulfillment of a prophecy made over David by the prophet Samuel just a few years earlier that David would become the Lord's anointed king over the nation. It takes an additional 20 years till that promise reaches its fulfillment. But in that time, David has to escape the wrath of his own king and battle mighty armies. It's not an easy road, but the Lord keeps his promise. A little shepherd boy becomes one of the greatest kings and military leaders in the known world. That is crazy. But it happens. It happens. The Lord works in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform and behold. We might consider a few examples in church history. Over the centuries, the Lord's church becomes corrupt. Its leaders have their own self-interest and not God's. They begin to adhere to traditions rather than the rule of the Bible. And once again, it's staggering how corrupt it becomes. These evil men manipulate the common people for their own purposes, and the Roman church becomes rich and opulent. There are many who notice it, and they begin to speak out against it, but all it took was one single monk named Martin Luther living in Germany, nailing up a notice on his church's door that would launch the Protestant Reformation. This Reformation would would turn the church back to the Bible, back to the message of the gospel. The transformation of the body of Christ worldwide is once again staggering. Once again, Christians are fed the living word of God, and they survive and they thrive. That shouldn't have happened. (laughs) A single monk in Germany transforming the world? How did it happen? Well, Luther said that the transformation didn't happen by war. It happened merely by preaching the word, sowing the seed. In a sermon, he said this, and I quote it, I will preach the word, teach it, write it, but I will constrain no man by force, for faith must come freely without compulsion. Take myself as an example. I opposed indulgences and all the papists, but never with force. I simply taught preached and translated God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends, Philip and Amsdorf, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. The word did everything. The pure gospel just spread out like wildfire. It was proclaimed And people believed, so much so that Luther didn't have to organize an army to bring God's kingdom on the earth. He could say, me and my buddies, we were just out drinking beer, and the gospel was doing its work on its own. Overturning the direction of Christendom with just the Bible? That's crazy, right? But it happened. It happened. 
Perhaps we might think of an event that's a little closer in our time to us. A, a group of Baptist ministers met in England in 1792. And a bivocational pastor who was also a shoemaker preached a sermon about how the church was failing in its mission to take the gospel to unreached nations. Christian nations appeared to be self-serving, keeping the gospel to itself. No one was taking the gospel to the places that had not been heard. And this minister named William Carey said the reason it had not happened was because it, due to a lack of faith. And his most famous line of the sermon was, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. The ministers were, were moved by the message. One named Andrew Fuller told Carey that if he would go, then he would hold the rope here back home. And thus the Baptist Missionary Society was formed. And one year later, Carey packed up his family and moved to India as its first missionary. And his first priority, like Luther, was to translate the Bible into native languages so that the word could go forth. A little shoemaker from England is considered the father of modern mission movements. In subsequent decades, other denominations became inspired by Carey's example. They recognized their neglect for the unreached, and shortly after the Baptist Missionary Society was formed, then came the Congregationalist London Missionary Society, then the Anglicans Church Missionary Society, then the Americans got involved, and they sent out their first missionary, Adoniram Judson in 1810, who, by the way, became a Baptist uh, while reading the Bible on the way to Burma. And then the Triennial Convention for Baptist in America was formed in 1814 with the purpose of sending missionaries out around the world. And this organization was the foundation of what came to be known as the Southern Baptist Convention. Now, I have to give credit where credit is due. William Carey was not the first Baptist missionary to an unreached place. That distinction belongs to a personal hero of mine, an American black preacher, a freed slave named George Lyle, who went to Jamaica in 1785. But we can credit Carey and Fuller as the fathers of modern missions due to the formation of organizing an agency that sent missionaries to the unreached as a regular process. And those pioneer missionaries risked life and limb for the good news of Jesus Christ. Many died from disease and starvation, but they still succeeded, not by force, but through the proclamation of a message. A shoe cobbler ensuring the gospel is taken to the ends of the earth? That is crazy. That's crazy. But isn't this how the kingdom of God works? Consider the example of the Christian home, and this is perfect for Mother's Day. A, a godly mother nurtures her children in the Lord. She sings hymns to their children. They sing to them when they're little babies. They, she teaches Bible verses and answers questions. She ensures that they're in church every Sunday, just like my mother did. And I've watched plenty of mothers teach grace and not just law in the way that they discipline their children. It was my own mother that instilled my passion for missions. But it's like that leaven that, that comes into the home. Father and mother, they, they work together with transformed hearts and sharing the gospel to their children. And the new covenant keeps its promises as they do as the gospel saturates the entire household. And for you, believer, isn't this how it happened to you? You weren't forced to be a Christian. You didn't compare various religions and say, mm, I think I'll choose that one. No, you heard the gospel, a simple message that you've sinned against a holy God and that you were under his wrath. 
and that his son Jesus will take upon himself what you deserved of that wrath, and if you'll believe that he died on the cross for you, you can be saved. You heard and you believed, and so you repented, and you have been transformed from the inside out. And now, by the power of the Holy Spirit, the law has been written in your heart, so you find yourself obeying and loving the Lord more and more each day. Like yeast and bread, it transformed you. It's marvelous, isn't it? The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. It cannot be stopped. It must succeed because it has the full power of God behind it. Christ will build his church and the gates of hell will never overcome it. God's kingdom will be established on earth as it is in heaven. And friend, if you feel that tug on your heart this day, then respond to it. Don't leave here today without speaking to one of us before you go. That just might be the leaven working its way inside of you this morning. But brothers and sisters, perhaps you felt discouraged by recent events here. You, you, you look out into the world and you see all this sin that's just running rampant among us. People calling evil things good and then calling good things evil. The, the open mocking of the Lord Jesus' name and, and disparaging his bride, the church. I can understand. I feel it too. <laughs> but Satan is not winning the battle. The outcome is secure. Jesus has triumphed over the grave and his kingdom is forever. But with, with all of the sin around us, you may be wondering, well, how will it happen? How will God establish his kingdom? Let me tell you how. The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree. So the birds of the air come and make nest in its branches. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. That's how. Let's pray. Lord, what confidence you give us. Lord, why do we always keep trying to tell ourselves that everything is up to us? When you are sitting on your throne, you are directing things. Lord, you are working in the hearts of men and women and boys and girls to respond to the gospel message. Lord, our faithfulness is that, that we declare a pure message of Jesus Christ, that we proclaim the gospel. I pray not only just for our mothers today, but I also pray for our fathers, that this message would be continued to be proclaimed in the homes, Lord. That, Lord, they would continue to to sing and to pray and to read scripture and to have family devotions and, and, Lord, just to constantly point others towards the love of Jesus Christ and that by Jesus and what he has accomplished on our behalf, we have access to you. And so, Lord, I pray that, that when we may feel discouraged by what's happening around us, let us never fail to realize your kingdom is still at work. It's still operating. It is still establishing itself and that cannot be stopped because it is your doing it is your way and so lord allow your church to respond to that by faith we pray this in the finished work of christ alone amen